Well, a very good evening to you tonight. It's so good to see all of you here. My wife, daughter, and I have had a very nice day today. We took the bus down to Hamilton, spent some time downtown, and then we took the ferry over to the dockyard and then took the bus back to where we're staying in Sandy's. And so we got a, a good view of more of the island that we hadn't seen, and so it was nice to get out and see some of the beautiful scenery here on this island. And we're thankful to be with you here again tonight. Tonight's message is a very important message. And I've been thinking a lot about tonight's message ahead of time. And, and I've also been thinking about what we talked about last night and how that was, you know, when I preach a message, I preach it for myself. And I pray that it blesses you as well. And I'm thankful for the story of Abraham. And I pray that the story of Elijah will be equally convicting and inspiring to us. So I would like to have a special word of prayer. And I'm actually going to kneel. And you can remain seated as we start our meeting this evening. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here tonight. And as we go through the message of the life of Elijah. May it inspire within our hearts an understanding of the type of lives you would have us to be living at this hour of Earth's history. And I just pray that you would give me the right words, help me to say the words in just the way you would have them spoken. May the messenger be lost sight of, but may the message point all of us to the foot of the cross and to your power and what you want to do through each one of us. So be with us during this next hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The message for this evening is entitled, In the Spirit and Power of Elijah. And I want to start with a passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 3 and 4. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. And here the word of the Lord says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Now, this verse is speaking of a time prophetically when a messenger would come who would prepare the way of the Lord. This was the second Elijah, John the Baptist, and he refers to this passage in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. John the Baptist was referred to as Elijah by Jesus Christ. So we're not going out on a limb to make this connection. Jesus called John the Baptist an Elijah. And if this verse applied to John the Baptist, certainly it applied to the first Elijah. And we're going to see by the end of our message that there is a third Elijah. Now, some people say that Elisha was the second Elijah, and that's fine. But I'm, for purposes of this message, I'm saying Elijah is the first Elijah, John the Baptist is the second Elijah, and God's last day people are the third Elijah. And this message 
Certainly applies to the first Elijah, prepare ye the way of the Lord. It applied to the second Elijah, John the Baptist, at the coming of the Messiah, and it applies to us as God's last day, Seventh-day Adventist people. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And I would submit to you tonight, brothers and sisters, that it is past time for the Elijah message to have a revival in God's church. It is time for the people of the Lord, it is time for each one of you here in this room to be a participant in the giving of the Elijah message, to prepare the way of the Lord. Listen, we're not here to prepare the way for people to be lukewarm, sleeping on Laodicea, and that is not our purpose. We're not here to sit by while there are crooked places in God's beloved church and we just sit by and see the crookedness go on. We need messengers with a message from the Lord to make straight a way for the coming of the King. The Elijah message, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And I am looking forward to the day that every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight in the rough places plain in verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now listen, if you want to be part of a message that prepares a way for the Lord, then we should go back and look at the life of Elijah who showed us how it's done. And let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. And by the way, when I say Elijah showed us how it was done, it was through the power of God, of course, not through his own strength. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. To the best of my understanding, 1 Kings 17, verse 1, is the first verse in Scripture that describes the prophet Elijah. And here we read, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Suddenly, Elijah is thrust into the middle of the biblical narrative with a startling warning to the king of Israel. Now, I'm going to quote liberally from the Spirit of Prophecy this evening to give us a, a clearer understanding of the background of 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 and onward. By the way, if you haven't read the book Prophets and Kings, especially the section on the life of Elijah, you need to do that. And if you haven't taken the time to read the Conflict of the Ages series by Sister White, listen, this five-set series is a roadmap for the plan of salvation, and for the last days of earth's history. And we as God's people should take advantage of the inside information that God has given us. Listen, you don't need to go reading about conspiracy theories. The information about what's going to happen at the end of time is right here in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy. That's all you need to know. So anyway, Elijah the Tishbite. This is Prophets and Kings, page 119. 
Among the mountains of Gilead, east of the Jordan, there dwelt in the days of Ahab a man of faith and prayer, whose fearless ministry was destined to check the rapid spread of apostasy in Israel. And you know, we need more fearless Seventh-day Adventists who will spread or who will stop the apostasy, who will check the spread of apostasy that Satan tries to bring into God's last day church. Far removed from any city of renown and occupying no high station in life, Elijah the Tishbite nevertheless entered upon his mission, confident in God's purpose to prepare the way before him and give him abundant success. Now notice this. The word of faith and power was upon his lips, lips and his whole life was devoted to the work of reform. The whole life of Elijah as he lived a life of faith, was devoted to a work of reformation among God's people. Now, Sister White tells us in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 121, that a revival of primitive godliness is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. To seek this should be our first work, which is why we're having this week of revival. But notice, in order to have true revival, reformation follows. We don't just come and have a meeting and say, let's get all revived for God and then continue going on living a lukewarm Laodicean life where the idols in our lives don't come down. We have revival and reformation. And Elijah could do a work of reform because his life was a revived life. Now here's something to consider. And I say this as a physician. And by the way, I'm not an emergency room physician. I don't like the high drama of sudden emergency situations. I like the more um, scheduled setting of a clinic where you know what's coming from one patient to the next. But anyway, in an emergency room setting, and I've been in those settings as a, a medical student and as a medical resident, there have been times where you hear the nurse call out to, this, to the doctor, this patient needs to be revived. Now, does that mean that the patient is just sort of in a bad state medically but is otherwise alive and well? No, it doesn't. That means the patient is dead. If you need to be revived, by definition, you are spiritually dead which is why we're having this week of revival, to be living sacrifices. In other words, you're dead spiritually, and in order to become alive spiritually, you need to become a living sacrifice. To die is to live, and to live is to die, so to speak. And Elijah dedicated his whole life to a work of reform. And she continues, his voice, his was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We read that from Isaiah 40. To rebuke sin and press back the tide of evil. And while he came to the people as a reprover of sin, his message offered the balm of Gilead to the sin-sick souls of all who desire to be healed. Now notice. Our message of revival and reformation isn't just a doom and gloom message. You're such an awful person, you wicked person. God doesn't want to hear from you. No, that's not our message. This message says, you know what? You've departed from the living God, and that breaks his heart. He has healing that he can give to you. And that's the work that Elijah did. Now, let's continue. There's some, some very important things that Ellen White says about the work of Elijah that led him to the point to just come before Ahab and say, there is not going to be rain for three and a half years. 
continuing on page 119 and on into page 120 of Prophets and Kings, as Elijah saw Israel going deeper and deeper into idolatry, his soul was distressed and his indignation aroused. Now listen, if you sit around and you see what's happening in the church and you're like, oh well, they're just part of the terrors, I'll let them be the way they are and it doesn't really affect me as long as I'm okay with God, is that the way Elijah was? No, when he saw the church of God sliding away from the clear truth, going deeper and deeper into idolatry, he, his soul was distressed. He had indignation. This bothered him. It wasn't just whatever. Elijah loved the people of God, and it broke his heart to see Israel sliding into idolatry. Continuing, God had done great things for his people. He had delivered them from bondage and given them the lands of the heathen. But the beneficent designs of Jehovah were now well nigh forgotten. Unbelief was fast separating the chosen nation from, their source of the, from the source of their strength. Viewing this apostasy from his mountain retreat, Elijah was overwhelmed with sorrow. And I ask you today, do you have sorrow, overwhelming sorrow, when you see God's people going on the wrong path? Or do you have a spirit of like, oh, that loser, they're so ridiculous. Why don't they get their lives together? Elijah had a godly sorrow for his people. In anguish of soul, he besought God to arrest the once favored people in their wicked course, to visit them with judgments if need be, that they might be led to see in its true light their departure from heaven. Do you notice what Elijah was praying for here? He was saying, God, I love your people so much, and you love your people so much. We don't want to see them lost. If it takes pouring out judgments upon them, do so if that will save them in your kingdom. Do we pray that way in our church today? Or do we say, well, let's just let the wheat and tares grow together, and God will sort it out at the end? Listen, it's one thing to let the wheat and the tares grow together because only God can judge the heart of a human individual. But it's another thing to see worldly principles and practices brought into the church and do nothing about it. The individual is one thing. We pray for them. We love them. We work with them. But to allow compromise, apostasy, worldly principle and policy, that is an altogether different thing. And if there were some Elijahs in our church today, and I wish there were more of them, what would they say? about Adventist institutions that are teaching evolution as fact. And by the way, I lived in Southern California, and I know for a certainty that the teachers in those schools ridicule those who try to defend the biblical view of creation. That should not be happening. And listen, we should have sorrow in our hearts as we see this, and we should be praying that God will visit, if necessary, with judgments to those people before it's too late. And you know what? In, continuing on page 120, Ellen White says, Elijah's prayer was answered. Amen. 
oft-repeated appeals, remonstrances, and warnings had failed to bring Israel to repentance. The time had come when God must speak to them by means of judgments, inasmuch as the worshipers of Baal claimed that the treasures of heaven, the dew and the rain, came not from Jehovah, but from the ruling forces of nature, and that it was through the creative energy of the sun that the earth was enriched and made to bring forth abundantly, the curse of God was to rest heavily upon the polluted land. The apostate tribes of Israel were to be shown the folly of trusting to the power of Baal for temporal blessings until they should turn to God with repentance and acknowledge him as the source of all blessing there should fall upon the land neither dew nor rain here you have God's professed people they have been led from Egypt to Canaan. They have been given a land that they didn't own. God had given them a land flowing with milk and honey. He had led them through the Red Sea. He had led them through the Jordan River. He had given them manna for 40 years. And now they are worshiping the God of Baal. And the teachings of Baal tell them, hey, it's not the God of heaven that gives you these temporal blessings. It's just nature running its chorus. The sun causes the the land to be blessed with energy. The sun causes moisture to come up from the sea. Clouds form, rain falls upon the earth. That's where rain is coming from, and it's not coming from the God of heaven. So don't worry about the true God of heaven. Just worship Baal and live a good life and have fun and have a good time. And yet it was the God of heaven whose name was being dishonored and profaned by his very own people. People who should have known better. And God warned them that if they ever turned from him, a time would come when he would withhold rain from heaven. This is Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting in verse 10. And it's amazing how quickly we as God's people forget the clear warnings that God has given us in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 10. For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence ye came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land whither ye go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end. Notice, God is saying, I take care of this land personally on your behalf. Verse 13, And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil." Do you realize that God was promising to literal Israel, as long as you follow me, the rain will come. The early rain and the latter rain. Now, last time I checked, we as God's people in the last days are waiting for the latter rain to fall upon us before the coming of the Lord. Now, God has promised to give us that rain, and we're going to talk about at the end of the message, why it has not yet fallen. Now let's continue in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 11. 
Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Verse 17, And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. God is saying, listen, be careful. If you turn away from worshiping the true and living God, I will turn away from pouring the rain upon the earth. And so as Elijah, he's looking around, and he is seeing, as far as he knows, He's the only one that has not yet bowed the knee to Baal. Now, God sets the record straight later in 1 Kings when he says there's still 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed down, but 7,000 out of who knows how many thousands. It was a very small percentage. Most of Israel had been overtaken by idolatry, and as far as Elijah could see, he was the only one left, and he's saying, God, what is happening to your people, your chosen people who have known of what you have done for us in the past? And he's praying, God, if it need be, remember how in the Bible you said in the book of Deuteronomy that if we turn away from you, you would withhold the rain? Maybe you need to do something like that to wait God's people up to realize that God is not going to continue to pour out his blessings forever on those that continue to disregard the word of God. God loves us, but he will only go so far in his blessings. And so his prayer was answered. And God sent him a message saying, Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab and tell him that there will be neither dew nor rain for three and a half years. And Ellen White says in the book Prophets and Kings that as he walked from his mountain home to the palace of Ahab, he had every reason to doubt this message from the Lord because he saw a land covered with green grass, flowing rivers and streams, beautiful trees and gardens. And he had every reason to wonder how how could this land dry up and not have running water? And yet he knew by faith that the word of the Lord would be true. And in fact, she says in page 121 in Prophets and Kings, it was only by the exercise of strong faith in the unfailing power of God's word that Elijah delivered his message. Had he not possessed implicit, implicit confidence in the one whom he served, he would never have appeared before Ahab. You know, we need more people in God's church today who have implicit faith in the word of God. Who, like Abraham, as we talked about last night, he, he saw that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And if the word of the Lord speaks heavenly bodies into existence, he can speak new life into our hearts. We need people who will say, if the word of the Lord says that he will be with us unto the ends of the world, and he calls us to prepare the way of the Lord and to make crooked ways straight, that we will go in before the rulers of the world and before whoever it may be, that is standing in the way of the will of God being done on this earth and by his grace and through his power, we will have the courage of Elijah to deliver such a message and to leave the results with God. And so Elijah gives a startling message to King Ahab and before King Ahab had time to react, Elijah was gone and they couldn't find him for three and a half years. And he went and hid by the brook Cherith, where God provided bread and water for him. 
listen. At the moment that Elijah uttered that message to Ahab, he was without home, family, or friends. He had nowhere to go. He could have thought before he gave the message, man, if I say this, I might lose my job. If I say this, I might lose my position, my authority, my power. What's going to happen to me? But you know what? God always takes care of those who are faithful to his word. And God provided a place for him to live where bread and water was supplied. In fact, the ravens brought bread for him. God performed a miracle every day in providing bread for him to eat. And we know that at the end of time, bread will, will be given us. Our water shall be sure, just as it was for Elijah. So let's leave the results with God. Let's have the faith of Elijah and give the message that he has called for us to give at this time rather than being afraid of the results and of the consequences. Now, that's not to say that there are some people out there, and I've heard them, that they just come in and they'll give what's called the straight testimony, and they do it with a spirit that is not of the Lord. And it, yes, it brings division, but if they had had a different spirit, it would have been so different. And the spirit that we give the message in is so important. Jesus, he gave rebukes with tears in his voice. Elijah, he had sorrow, godly sorrow, for the people of the Lord. Continuing on. After the water dries up at the brook Cherith, then he is directed by God to go to a widow in the town of Zarephath. And that's in 1 Kings 17, 8 through 24. I'm just hitting some highlights. Now, the only thing I'm going to say about this part of the story is this. Jesus makes reference to the time that Elijah spent with the widow Zarephath during this three and a half years in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. And let's look at what Jesus says about Elijah, and of course there were the miracles that the woman was about to run out of food, and because she took Elijah in, then the food supply continued, and then the widow's son died, and Elijah raised the widow's son back to life. He had the power of God to bring life from death. And in Luke chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 24 through 26, this is what Jesus says. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Zarephath, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Listen, Jesus is saying, Elijah was the, was the prophet of the Lord from God's own people, and his own people didn't accept the message that he brought. They had been steeped in apostasy, worshiping the God of Baal, when the Ten Commandments clearly say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. And yet that's what the children of Israel were doing. And when a prophet comes and delivers a simple message, because you have turned from the Lord your God, there will be no dew nor rain for three and a half years. The people of the Lord were not like, Oh, wow, we better repent. We've been following the wrong God. Their response was, go get him. 
Put him to death. We don't want this guy get bringing us trouble. He's causing trouble upon us. And, and Jesus specifically refers back to this time as he's being rejected by the people in the city of Nazareth. They had seen him grow up from a child. And they're saying, you can't be the Messiah, Jesus. And he's saying, you know what? A prophet is without honor in his own country. You had the prophet Elijah in Israel, and God didn't see fit to, of any widow in the entire land of Israel to send him to when he needed protection. He had to look outside of God's people. And how is it with us today? If there was an Elijah in our midst today, would we shelter him? Or would we be afraid to be associated with him? Would we be unhappy with Elijah's message? And if Jesus saw fit to point that out, I thought that was a worthy point to bring out about Elijah. He was without honor in his own country. But finally the day came... <coughs> After three and a half years, in 1 Kings chapter 18, where the word of the Lord comes again to Elijah. And in verse 1 of chapter 18, we read, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. You see, God is a long-suffering and merciful God. They still haven't repented, but God is saying, Okay, it's been long enough. They've seen for three and a half years what, their what the result is of their apostasy. Now I'm going to bring my prophet Elijah back to show them once and for all that I am the true God of Israel. That I am still the God that has all power in heaven and earth, who controls the rain, who controls the sun, who controls everything in our lives. And so Elijah came to show himself to Ahab. And he runs into Obadiah, who was the governor of Ahab's house. And Obadiah was one of God's faithful men. He had hid 100 prophets of the Lord in caves by 50 apiece, after many of God's prophets were put to death by Jezebel after Elijah made his decree. And so Obadiah, here he is working in the king's house, and he is a faithful man of God. And he and Ahab, at this point in the story, they were so desperate to find water that Ahab and Obadiah were out looking for pasture of land that might have any water where they could feed their flocks and get, get some water for the palace. It was that dire of a situation. And so when Elijah comes to, a or to Obadiah and says, go get Ahab, tell him that I'm here, Obadiah is like, are you kidding me? As soon as I leave here, the Spirit of the Lord will take you somewhere else. We, we won't be able to find you, and Ahab will put me to death. But then Elijah assures Obadiah, no, it's okay. I will meet Ahab today by the word of the Lord. And this is where things become very interesting. And actually, before I get to verse 17 of 1 Kings 18, I want to read a passage from Prophets and Kings again, page 133. <clears throat> page 133 of Prophets and Kings. The apostasy prevailing in Ahab's day was the result of many years of evil doing. Step by step, year after year, Israel had been departing from the right way, 
For generation after generation, they had refused to make straight paths for their feet, and at last the great majority of the people had yielded themselves to the leadership of the powers of darkness. And the next paragraph said it had only been 100 years since King David had been the king of Israel. And here you have 100 years later, King David had been a righteous king minus a few mistakes, and including a huge mistake with Bathsheba. But he was a man after God's own heart when he repented of his mistake. And he was a righteous king, yet here we are 100 years later, and step by step, generation after generation, Israel had reached the point where they were following the leaders of the powers of darkness. And I mentioned this in the message about Laodicea, that in Laodicea, we have a tendency to say, well, I just want salvation. I don't want to live according to the word of God. As long as I'm saved, who cares about some of the standards that God has set out? And so we we look at standards and we say, well, is this a salvational issue? Oh, probably not. The grace of God will cover me if I'm still doing this or that. And so we lower the standard. And then a few years later, the standard lowers a little further. And a few years later, we lower the standard a little further and further and further. And so a hundred years ago, you had a group of people of Seventh-day Adventists who, by the grace of God, were doing their best, best to live a, a righteous and pure life. And a hundred years later, people don't see anything wrong with going to R-rated movies and having fun and watching them. And what has happened to God's people? We're supposed to be preparing the way of the Lord to make straight a path for the Lord to come, and yet we are taking pleasure in the iniquity that the world participates in. And don't tell me that in many cases we're not any different than ancient Israel. And I'm not saying that everybody in the church is like that, don't get me wrong, but too oftentimes we see this all over the place. And you lower the standards step by step by step by step so that eventually you start to see light as darkness and darkness as light. And so, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17, finally Ahab meets Elijah three and a half years later. And notice what happens in this exchange in verses 17 and 18. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And notice verse 18, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Listen. When the Lord sends an Elijah to his people to give a straight message, a message of warning, a message of rebuke, so many times those who have become accustomed to ease-loving, worldly-loving, smooth-sailing Christianity, when a message comes designed to wake up the church, the reaction among God's people is, oh no, here comes a troublemaker. And you know what? It's not the messenger or the message that is the cause of the trouble. It's the apostasy, the compromise, the lack of revival and reformation among God's people that has brought the trouble in among the church. And listen, when we talk about being united, you can have unity in name or you can have unity in spirit and in truth. Truth does not divide. Truth does not divide. It is error that divides the church. 
It is the truth of God that unites us. I mean, if we, if we say, well, let's just all get along and I'll believe what I want to believe and you can believe what you want to believe, we're just turning into a Seventh-day Adventist club. But if we want to be the Seventh-day Adventist church, we're going to be united on points of doctrine that allow us to march together in truth, unity, harmony, and in the Spirit of the Lord. And so when Ahab says to Elijah, are you he that troubleth Israel? Elijah, as the prophet of the Lord, puts him in his place and says, I'm not the one that's troubling Israel. It's you and your father's house because you have departed from following the living God. Listen, those who are the troublemakers among God's people are those who have departed from following the true and living God. Not those who are following the Lord. And so what does Elijah do after this exchange? He actually calls for an encounter upon Mount Carmel. But before we get to Mount Carmel, Ellen White has some strong words in Prophets and Kings, starting in page 140, paragraph 2. And I would encourage you, if you've never read this statement before, to write this quote down. Prophets and Kings, page 140. Today, there is need of the voice of stern rebuke. For grievous sins have separated the people from God. Infidelity is fast becoming fashionable. We will not have this man to reign over us, is the language of thousands. The smooth sermons so often preached make no lasting impression. The trumpet does not give a certain sound. Men are not cut to the heart by the plain, sharp truths of God's word. There are many professed Christians who, if they should express their real feelings, would say, what need is there of speaking so plainly? They might as well ask, why need John the Baptist have said to the Pharisees, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why need he have provoked the anger of Herodias by telling Herod that it was unlawful for him to live with his brother's wife? The forerunner of Christ lost his life by his plain speaking. Why could he not have moved along without incurring the displeasure of those who were living in sin? So men who should be standing as faithful guardians of God's law have argued till policy has taken the place of faithfulness and sin is allowed to go unreproved. When will the voice of faithful rebuke be heard once more in the church? Let me read that again. When will the voice of faithful rebuke be heard once more in the church? Thou art the man... Nathan said to David, words as unmistakably plain as, as these spoken by Nathan to David are seldom heard in the pulpits of today, seldom seen in the public press. If they were not so rare, we should see more of the power of God revealed among men. Did you hear that? If it was not so rare to hear this type of a rebuke, this type of a message, we would see more of God's power among his people today. The Lord's messengers should not complain that their efforts are without fruit until they repent of their own love of approbation and their desire to please men, which leads them to suppress truth. Did you hear that? It's the love of men that causes messengers to suppress truth. Those ministers who are men-pleasers who cry, peace, peace, when God has not spoken peace, might well humble their hearts before God, asking pardon for their insincerity and their lack of moral courage. It is, and now notice this. 
It is not from love for their neighbor that they smoothed down the message entrusted to them, but because they are self-indulgent and ease-loving. True love seeks first the honor of God and the salvation of souls. Those who have this love will not evade the truth to save themselves from the unpleasant results of plain speaking. When souls are in peril, God's ministers will not consider self, but will speak the word given them to speak, refusing to excuse or palliate evil. Listen. If you like to hear messages that just make you feel good about yourself when there, you know that there is sin in your life, and if you hear messages that point out the sin in your life and you don't like to hear it, you are not doing the work of God any favors by looking for messengers who will give messages that will make you, yourself feel good about yourself without being rebuked from the word of the Lord. In fact, Paul says in 1st or 2nd Timothy that in the last days, men will heap upon themselves teachers having itching ears, meaning they want their ears to be scratched. They want their ears to feel good and to just feel good about themselves. And listen, the, the message that Elijah brought, yes, it was a balm in Gilead, but it also pointed out sin in a way that there was no question in the people's minds where they had departed from the true and the living God. And Ellen White actually says, when ministers smooth down the message, they're not doing it because they love the people. They're actually doing it because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So, by the grace of God, let's pray for messengers who will give the message straight who will raise up more and more messengers to tell the people in a loving Christ-like way what the message is for our time. And so we come to the story of Mount Carmel. Elijah tells Ahab, get all of the prophets of Baal and the children of Israel to the top of Mount Carmel. And Ahab obeyed. And here we see, starting in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. Or actually, let's start in verse 20. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Now notice verse 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Here's the messenger of the Lord, the prophet of God saying, How long are you going to halt or waver between following God and following Baal? If you're going to follow Baal, follow him all the way. If you're going to follow God, follow God all the way. And after three and a half years of no rain, where the people could see that the worship of Baal had nothing to offer. Baal was supposed to be the God that brought the rain, and they'd had no rain for three and a half years. And here the prophet of the Lord says, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? They couldn't answer. Three and a half years of no rain wasn't enough evidence yet for them to say, you know what, we have turned from the true and living God, and we are going to come back to follow him. And so then Elijah says, okay, let's see what happens here. Let's make an altar, and the prophets of Baal, you can go first. Pray to your God, and whoever can have their God bring fire down from heaven, they will prove to be the true God. And so the entire day, 
the children of Israel sit around watching as the prophets of Baal cut themselves, mutilate themselves, scream and cry and howl and whatever else to try to get Baal to bring fire down from heaven. And you have to be wondering, what are the children of Israel thinking as they watch these prophets cut themselves and mutilate themselves saying, how could we have gone so far from the worship of the pure, true and living God to following a worship system where people are dancing all over the place and cutting themselves and shouting and screaming? And yet all day they just sit and wait by saying, well, maybe, maybe the prophets of Baal will get some fire to come down from heaven. And finally, at the end of the day, Elijah says, that's enough. And he has them pour water three times over the broken down altar of the Lord. An altar that had, been not been, had not been used for many years now by the people of God. And Elijah says, the time has come now to build back up the altar of God, to build up the worship of the living God. And just so that you know that we're not playing games with you and, and we're creating a fire that burns up the sacrifice, we're going to pour water over it three times so that you know that there can't be fire from the stones or the sacrifice that cause a fire to burn the sacrifice. And then in verse 36, the Bible says, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, and this is a prayer, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. What a prayer. Notice, he's, he's praying that the name of God would be honored and glorified before the onlooking nation. And he's also praying that God would turn their heart back again to him. This is a redemptive prayer. Elijah isn't coming here to try to tear down the people, to tear down Israel. He still believed in the nation of Israel, the institution that God had designed. He never jumped ship. But yet he wasn't afraid to point out where God's people had gone wrong. And he prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. The patriarchs and fathers of the faith. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. And in verse 38, as soon as he had finished that prayer, verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Revival had taken place among the people as they saw the power of God manifested by the simple yet powerful faith of the prophet of the Lord who in front of an entire nation where he was the only one willing to take a stand for God because of his stand he led the nation of Israel back to the worship of the true and the living God 
and that the revival was followed with reformation, and it was with, with some pretty stiff reformation, I might add. In verse 40, it says, And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Not only did Elijah do the work of revival, he personally took it upon himself to slay every single one of the 450 prophets of Baal. That's a man with some courage from the power and grace of God. And I pray by the grace of God that I would have that type of courage. It's one thing to get up before a congregation and give a message like this, but to go before people with power and authority, that's not easy. But Elijah was willing to do that for the honor and glory of God's name. And there is a need for more Elijahs in our church today. Now something very special happens after that Reformation took place. In verses 41 through 46, we see that Elijah prayed for rain. He called upon Ahab, and you can read it. He told Ahab, and he says, you know, go, go and get something to eat. We're going to pray for rain, and, and the rain's going to come. And Elijah could do this because he knew the promise of God in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And this is a familiar passage, and it was certainly relevant to the time that Elijah prayed. 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Here you see the mercy of God. That even if you had turned away from God, if you turn away from your wickedness, if you come back to the Lord, if you seek his face, he will heal from, hear from heaven and heal your land. He will send the rain again. And so Elijah says it's time to pray for the rain. And in 1 Kings 18, 42, it says, So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now. Now look toward the sea. And when he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And how many times did he say there was nothing? Six times. It was the seventh time that a small cloud was seen. Now, when Elijah began praying, did he know how many times it was going to take to pray before the rain came? Did Elijah know that when I pray the seventh time, because seven is a perfect number, that's when the rain's going to come? Elijah didn't know that. All he knew was that God had promised he would send rain and that there was a promise in Scripture that if God's people turn from their wickedness and repent, he will send the rain. And so God has just shown himself to the nation of Israel and Elijah says, I'm going to pray earnestly now for God to bring rain back to the nation of Israel. And so he prays one time, no rain. Two times, no rain. Three times, no rain. Four times, no rain. And by now he's starting to say, okay, God, 
you know, we just had this great victory. I prayed and immediately the fire came down from heaven. But I know that with persistent prayer, you are going to hear my prayer. I'm going to keep praying as long as it takes. If it takes me a hundred times, a thousand times, we are going to pray until the rain comes. And so many times we as God's people, we will see a promise in the word of God and we'll say, well, when Elijah prayed for the fire to come down from heaven, it came right away. How come he isn't answering my prayer right now? Yet we forget that right after the fire came down from heaven, Elijah prayed seven times until the rain came. And in fact, in the book of James chapter 5, it describes this prayer as the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. We need to learn how to pray effectually and fervently. And by the way, we need to be righteous when we offer our prayers before the Lord. The Bible says if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. Elijah was a righteous man. He could pray to the Lord that the rain would come. And you know, and, and I only have a few more minutes left, so we're going to skip or just hit the high points of Elijah's life, and then we'll make some applications you know, from the Mount Carmel time. So then Elijah, he runs on adrenaline probably and from the power of the Lord. From Mount Carmel, he leads Ahab all the way through the rain back to town. I mean, I don't think I could do that in my, um, the shape that I'm in right now. Elijah was apparently in good physical condition. He was able to lead Ahab all the way back to the town. And as soon as he gets back to town, something very interesting happens. He's just had a signal victory. Fire has come down from heaven. They've slain the prophets of Baal. The rain has come after three and a half years. He thinks now that Ahab is on his side. He, he and Ahab are going to work hand in hand. He's led Ahab back to the city. There, there's going to be wor a work of reformation in Israel that's going to go forward. Now the prophets of Baal are gone. And then Ahab goes and tells Jezebel what happened. And Jezebel, apparently Elijah must have thought that when Jezebel heard of the wonders of God, that she would have said, oh, wow, I repent. Let's follow the true and the living God from this day forward. But, you know, Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbel, and they were steeped in the religion of Baal. There was no way that she was going to give up the God of her fathers. And she sends Elijah the, a message by the time tomorrow this night, so be it done to you as, as it's been done to all the prophets of Baal. And what Elijah should have done is say, by the power of God, it will be to you as it was done unto the prophets of Baal. No, he got afraid. He let go of his hold, his faith upon God. And this is where the Bible becomes very real. These powerful Bible characters, they had moments of weakness. And so if you slip and fall by the grace of God, he can pick you back up as well. You may have had a powerful mountaintop experience, and then you may have an experience like Elijah where you get discouraged. And he flees to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and he's there 40 days away from the children of Israel. And the Lord comes to him and says, what, what are you doing here, Elijah? What doest thou here? And Elijah has a little pity party. He says, there's nobody left in Israel. I'm the only one left. Everybody's following Baal. I'm tired of this God. I, I, it would just be better if I die and, and be taken to my fathers and put in the grave. And you know, God is too loving and merciful to leave us in discouragement and self-pity. He says, hey, Elijah, did you realize 
that there are 7,000 other Israelites who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And do you realize that in God's last day church, there are still many faithful members who are being faithful to the word of the Lord. Let's not just get discouraged if we feel like we're the only one left. And so God then gives Elijah some instruction. He says, go and anoint Jehu to be the next king of Israel and go anoint Elisha to be the prophet who will follow after you. And that's exactly what Elijah did. And after that time, he and Elisha worked through the school of the prophets to do a work of education and reform, to change the nation of Israel and to bring back a knowledge of the true God. And after God was done with Elisha's work on this earth, he wasn't going to let Elijah die in some cave out by Mount Horeb. He had a much better plan. And in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 9, we see what happened at the end of Elijah's sojourn here on this earth in his pre-glorified state. Verse 9, And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. And if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah had the unique privilege, the second person in the history of this world, the first being Enoch, of being translated without seeing death. And you know, that's not the end of the story for Elijah here on this earth. You realize Elijah shows up again in scripture? Just before Jesus died, Moses and Elijah had the privilege of appearing to the Lord and saying, Jesus, we know what it's like to be with a group of stiff-necked Israelites. You came down to this earth to save them, and they've rejected you. They're going to put you on the cross. But we can assure you that your sacrifice will be worth it. You know why, Jesus? Because you're going to die for each one of us. If you don't go through on the cross, we're going to have to come back down from heaven because there will be no sacrifice for our sins. And if by your grace you, go, you choose to go through and die on the cross, we will be among the redeemed in heaven if for nobody else. And Elijah has the privilege of being known as the one who was the first Elijah. You have Elisha with the, second, the double portion. Then you have John the Baptist, who was the Elijah who prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. And then Scripture says, just before Jesus comes, that Elijah will appear again. So the work of Elijah, way back those many centuries ago, 100 years after King David, has lived on until the end of time. In fact, Ellen White says, and this is, probably going to be my last spirit of prophecy quote for the evening. In, the, in Prophets and Kings, pages 188 and one, or actually I'm going to start a few pages before that. Page 177 from the chapter In the Spirit and Power of Elias. That, that's where I got the title for my sermon. Through the long centuries that have passed since Elijah's time, 
The record of his life work has brought inspiration and courage to those who have been called to stand for the right in the midst of apostasy. And for us upon whom the ends of the world are come, it has special significance. History is being repeated. The world today has its Ahabs and its Jezebels. The present age is one of idolatry, as verily as was that in which Elijah lived. No outward shrine may be visible. There may be no image for the eye to rest upon. Yet thousands are following after the gods of this world, after riches, fame, pleasure, and the pleasing fables that permit man to follow the inclinations of the unregenerate heart. Now let me make a special mention of that last part, that last phrase that she said. The pleasing fables that permit man to follow the inclinations of the unregenerate heart. Listen, if, there, if you hear theology that tells you it's okay to continue to live in sin until Jesus comes, that is a theology of idolatry that is causing God's people to be like the Israel of old and following after Baal. And God needs Elijah today to say, our unregenerate hearts need to be converted. We need to be living sacrifices, transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the message of Elijah will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And in the, at the end of this chapter, Ellen White says, among earth's inhabitants, scattered in every land, there are those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Like the stars of heaven, which only appear at night, these faithful ones will shine forth when darkness covers the earth and gross darkness the people. Now notice this. In heathen Africa, in the Catholic lands of Europe and of South America, in China, in India, in the islands of the sea, Bermuda. And in all the dark corners of the earth, God has in reserve a firmament of chosen ones that will yet shine forth amid the darkness, revealing clearly to an apostate world the transforming of power of obedience to his law. Do you realize that in this island of the sea, God has his people who, like Elijah, will be a shining light, giving a straight message to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. That's why the Somerset Seventh-day Adventist Church exists, to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. And the story of Elijah is the story of God's last-day people, an Elijah message that will prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. It will be a message of stern rebuke, pointing out the sins in the church, yet it will be a message of hope that offers the balm of Gilead to the sin-sick soul. And just as Elijah prayed for rain, James chapter 5 tells us that we should pray for rain as well. In James chapter 5, starting in the last part of verse 16, it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice verse 17. Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now it's very interesting, if you skip to verse 7, just earlier in the chapter, it's saying... It, notice what it says, verse 7 of James 5, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rain. And so James is saying to God's last day people, the husbandman, Jesus, he's the one that's waiting for us. 
He's waiting until he can have the precious fruit of the earth, the fruit that is ripe, the first fruit known as the 144,000. But he will not have that group of people until the latter rain is poured out. And if you want to know how to receive the latter rain, go back to the life of Elijah. He was a man subject to like passions as we are. And when he prayed for rain, the rain came. And do you realize in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1, it says to pray for rain in the time of the latter rain? Elijah is a man who is an example to God's last day people. Because you see, Elijah, he prayed for the rain, and the rain came. And then he was translated without seeing death. God's last day people, we are to be praying for the latter rain. And by the way, when's the last time you prayed for the latter rain to fall upon God's people? to fall upon your heart? If we're not praying for the latter rain, how is it going to come? And James is saying, listen, in order for the fruit, the fruit of the earth to be ripened, the latter rain must fall. And in order for the latter rain to fall, there need to be people, people who have like passions as Elijah, who will pray effectual, fervent, righteous prayers for the outpouring of the latter rain among God's last day people. And when that rain is poured out, we will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll be, we will be awakened, as we saw on Sabbath. The, the cry will go out. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. The latter rain will fall. Jesus will come back and we will be translated without seeing death, just like Elijah. Now, there's one other thing I should say, though. With the three Elijahs, Elijah was translated, John the Baptist was beheaded, and it's reasonable to think that among those who proclaim the last Elijah message, there will be martyrs for the faith, and then there will be those who are translated. We'll leave that with God. But whatever it may be, we want to give the Elijah message. And actually, I guess I was wrong when I said I had my last Spirit of Prophecy quote. This really is the last one. This is Testimonies, Volume 5, and this is where we're going to end. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 136. When the religion of Christ is most held in contempt, when his law is most despised, then should our zeal be the warmest and our courage and firmness the most unflinching. To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us. To fight the battles of the Lord when champions are, are few. This will be our test. At this time we must gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. Listen, if Elijah through the grace and power of God could live the life, and give the message that he gave, surely God's last day people can expect no less of a challenge, yet no less of a privilege than what Elijah did. Because he was translated without seeing death. He's a type of God's last day people. He prayed for the rain, and the rain came. And if we're going to pray for the outpouring of the latter rain, listen, when that latter rain comes and we're filled with the Holy Spirit to give the loud cry to a lost and dying world, we will face severe opposition. Because that message is going to identify Babylon as the habitation of devils, we will be calling people to come out, and the rest of Babylon will be saying, stay in. And we're going to be fighting against the whole world, yet because God is on our side, we will be in the majority. But we need, at this point in time, listen, if you're afraid of standing up for the truth now, what are you going to do then? 
if Elijah hadn't stood up for what was right all the way up until the time God called him to be a messenger, what would he have done then? The reason God could use Elijah as his messenger at that time is because Elijah, he saw the condition of his people. He was praying about the condition of his people. He asked for God to do something. And when God found a man that he saw he could use, he used him. And he's looking for that type of person today. If you want to be a modern-day Elijah, to partake in the giving of the Elijah message, I would invite you to stand with me as we have a special prayer of consecration. You want to be part of giving a special message to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Elijah message. This was a straight message. This was a strong message. But Lord, this is the message that you have given to your last day people to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. Lord, we ask for forgiveness where we have allowed ourselves to accept ideas and theories that may have pleased our unregenerate heart, that have prevented us from becoming living sacrifices, and that have prevented us from going out and having the spirit and power of Elijah to wake up a sleeping church. Lord, I know that you have a purpose for each one of the people that is here tonight, myself included, that you would use each one of us to do a special work in preparing a way for the coming of the Lord. Lord, help us to be praying for the outpouring of the latter rain. Help us to be confessing the sins in our lives that have separated us from you. Help us to turn back to you so that you can pour out your spirit upon us. And may we have that sweet spirit of Jesus in our hearts so that as we do this work of revival and reformation, people won't see a spirit of unregenerate condemnation, but the sweet spirit of Jesus that is also loving and firm. And I pray that as a result of this message, you will allow each one of us to become more aware of where we are in earth's history and of the message you would have us to be given. Be with us through the remainder of this series. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now tomorrow night, the title of the message is Jesus, the Ultimate Sacrifice. We've talked about the ten virgins. We've talked about the Laodicean message. We've talked about Abraham and Elijah. Now we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going in chronological order here. And if you want to know what your purpose and reason is for following the Lord, you don't want to miss the message tomorrow night. Because if you've wondered what Jesus is all about and why he died for us and how that motivates us to serve him, you're going to want to hear the message tomorrow night. And it will be a message of encouragement. I can guarantee you that. So we'll see you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. May God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.